Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. This episode of the PowerCast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcasts.com slash PowerCast. That's audiblepodcasts.com slash PowerCast. And now, on with the show. So I was reading the story that James Carrion has stepped down as international director of MUFON. It's kind of sad news. I like the guy. Seems like a pretty rational, level-headed guy, right? Yeah. So is there a story behind that? Or is it just, you know, it's too much time to spend when you have a private life? Listen, who in their right minds wants to publicly be involved with this stuff besides us? And, and a few other people that do this madness. Yeah, but you see, the point is, the word in their right mind. In their right mind. Well, you that's see, that key. covers a lot of stuff. Now, yeah. according to what he says here, he had planned not to spend more than two or three years doing this. That's what his letter says. Well, like we said, he seems like a reasonable guy, so that's a reasonable stance, don't you think? Sure. And then Clifford Clift, who works with him at MUFON, is going to be taking over. That would be Mr. Clift. That's right. Cliffy Clift. Cliff Clift. Oh, God. Who I, I don't know that we know anything about this guy. I don't know anything about this guy. You know, it, it kind of brings me to a point I wanted to mention, Gene. First of all, I want to apologize for the preamble we did last week. I'm getting into the, I'm getting into the habit of this, just apologizing for things we said the week before. Uh, I made the terrible mistake of trying to listen to the show and, and got into the preamble, and I had to turn it off. It wasn't a terrible... Listeners, don't you think the preamble last week was just terrible? Just bad. Why do you say that? It was just bad. Because it just doesn't, it didn't, oh, ah, I don't want to relive it. It's well, just not good. I won't repeat it's what we said, good. okay? I won't get into the subject matter. All right, good. Because let's talk I just about think dogs and, and cats. And let's talk about pets. Pets? I thought okay. we just do a whole episode just about, like, furry pets. You know, my wife has suggested, this is serious, that we do an episode about psychic pets. Psychic pets or pet psychics? <laughs> I don't know. Well, what does she I look like? I suppose the two would go together. No, Gene, I, I really... You know, if we were doing, like, a nightly show, we're doing a thing every night of the week, and one night we just had to have on an animal psychic, I'd probably fight it then, too. But I think I'd ultimately acquiesce just because you, you'd have to fill those hours, right? But hopefully we won't get that desperate for a while. I think, really, there are so many guests that we'd like to have if we have the opportunity for five days a week. And the presence on a network or a bunch of local stations. Right. There are a lot of guests out there who I think would just come on. And there are a handful. I think we get most every guest we really go after. Boy, they come yes to us. Yes and no. Well, the thing is... We already know that, like on the Paracast, we've had certain people on, and we have them on for one show, and that's all we want to deal with. I mean, can you imagine if we had something like the Richard Hoagland nightmare over on that other, on that, you know, that big show? The one where the guy has the mustache that they're turning into a poisonous element to use for treating insect infestation? Come on. No? (laughs) No. No, you know, are we twelve now? Are we? I, uh, I, I it would be nice to start out at twelve years old. It's a good age to start because you're just starting to really learn what's going on in the world, and you're not too old to enjoy it. 
Well, but I want to enjoy things. Are you saying that you're not too old to enjoy it, so that's a good thing? Well, you're saying you know, that not you know enjoying it's a good thing? If you're too old to enjoy something, what's the good of knowing about it? Well, too old to enjoy what exactly? I don't know. What am I too old to enjoy? You always try to. You should always try to keep that inner, that quote-unquote inner child alive, you know, which means that sometimes you should just break out some construction paper and crayons and just draw. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you just sat down with some paper and just started, like, drawing? I do not draw. Everybody can draw. No. Just like everybody I cannot draw. Can, like, draw. Now, no. understand you're a graphic no. artist. You're an image editing expert. You knew Photoshop when it was on a single floppy disk. Don't start disc. with this because then people go, oh, he's talking about David. You know, we get that. Well, the point stuff. is here, you know how to do this stuff. No, I, I, I grew up drawing. Actually, in my adult life, I pulled away from drawing. But I grew up just wedded to my, my sketchbooks, my markers, my colored pencils, my rapidographs. I, I grew up just obsessed with that stuff because we didn't have computers. Had I had a computer, it might have all been very different. But at that early age, I mean, I, wasn't, I didn't get access to a computer until I was about 13 or 14. But before that... Uh, when I was 13 or 14, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, they were using an abacus. <sighs> cricket sounds. Insert cricket sound here. You have to do that. Just insert the cricket sounds right, right here. Okay. All right. They had calculators when you were that age. Cut it out. Calculators? No. Not really. Oh, I guess you're... No, that's right. That's right. They just I predate calculators. calculators. Uh, yeah, adding no, machines. Right. Yeah, <sighs> mechanical adding machines. Seriously. <laughs> This is another preamble that I will apologize for now. Let's talk about why today's guest interests me. And the reason is it's a UFO abductions researcher, John Carpenter, and certainly I have in plenty of insights on that. Director subject. John Carpenter? Not is that one. Show? No, a UFO abduction I have researcher. the best John Carpenter story ever. All right. We're talking about the John Carpenter, the director, as opposed to the John Carpenter, the UFO abductions researcher. That's a lie of demarcation. So tell us. The director, John Carpenter's oh, I story. I, I can't no, even no, no. say that. Imagine, ladies and gentlemen, I got through that without stumbling. I'm amazed by myself. Go ahead. No, it's a story that involves uh, the days when I was in Industrial Light Magic, and uh, I was given the task of doing some test composites for a movie that Carpenter was going to do that, thank goodness, he decided against doing. It would have been the worst thing ever. The working title was Toddlers, and the idea was that you'd have full-grown adults. Specifically, it was going to be, Gene, I'm not making this up. This is totally for real. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Eddie Murphy were going to be shot against blue screen, dressed up like in these weird sort of contrived children's garbs, outfits, and they were going to be shot green screen because then what we were going to do is we were going to composite them into other live action except at like half size. So they'd be like children, but fully grown and adults, but they'd be small. Oh, OK. Don't this go any true. further. Now, it was enough to see Danny DeVito and Arnold oh, as twins. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. okay. It was yeah. enough to see Arnold as a pregnant man. 
let's not go any further. Let's explain that the reason we're going to interview UFO abductions researcher John Carpenter, the other John Carpenter, is because he has this new 90-minute DVD about Leonard Stringfield. Now, some people will say... The movie director? Leonard Stringfield? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Leonard Stringfield, people will say, who is he? Now, I knew Leonard Stringfield slightly. He was a UFO investigator who got the ear of lots of people in the military who fed him a lot of information about UFOs that otherwise it would have remained unreported, top secret, whatever Wait, you want like to Like Stephen Bassett? <laughs> well, Leonard Stringfield was a real guy and Wait, fortunately no longer here. Not a real guy? What? That's fighting words, man. Okay, well, you know, he obviously didn't get involved with disclosure. As much as I can tell. There is no disclosure. There is no disclosure. We will not mention the D word, but we will mention it. No, we have to, because uh, you had sent me this thing. We won't mention the name, but on that that terrible examiner website that should be shut down immediately, there was that thing about why Obama did not disclose the UFO truth in 2009. And it was because of Sarah Palin joining Fox. Did you see that? Coming up next on the Paracast, UFO abduction researcher John Carpenter. Sarah Palin. Palin. (laughs) Not Sarah Palin. Not Sarah Barracuda. Not Caribou Barbie. John Carpenter will tell us about Leonard Stringfield coming up next on this show. (laughs) Whatever it's called. Kansas anymore. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. John Carpenter, tell us who was Leonard Stringfield? Leonard Stringfield 
interesting man because he served both in the military and while he was in the military he not only experienced UFOs from his fighter plane but then he was asked to track them for the military um, while in the military and then afterwards he was part of the ground observer corps which was set up to track aerial objects and if they verify them on radar then the local air base would send up fighter planes to chase them and this was in the Cincinnati area over the tri-state area uh, Indiana Kentucky and Ohio so he started doing that and at one point he uh, he said well what if I just go to the press with this uh, great chase you had last night over three states of these UFOs and they said sure go ahead tell them and, of course, the press verified the story with the military, and the military said they never heard of Leonard Stringfield. <laughs> so Lynn became a great UFO collector of data, both on the military side and on the civilian side, except the military wouldn't acknowledge his existence once he tried to go public with any reports. So he uh, he became a trusted person um, among fellow military personnel, uh, going all the way up to, like, the president of Mexico and other high-ranking officials who knew that they could go to him and that he understood the UFO problem and would be confidential with their identities. And it's very tricky for him to get information because sometimes he had to go through a, well, usually he said he went through another party to set up any kind of information exchange because there was such great fear over uh, revealing what anybody knew from any encounter or seeing alien bodies or crashed vehicles, etc. So, so it sounds like the military was basically at one point setting him up. Well, no, they sincerely wanted to track the objects and find out what was going on. Because when he first saw them, it was during World War II, and they were called Foo Fighters. Mm -hmm. and they didn't know whose they were or what was going on, so he was part of uh, investigation to collect data. But the minute he became a civilian and tried to report anything the military was doing, then, of course, they that point without any knowledge. Sense. And, okay. and that's, that's so interesting because here you have a guy who was on both sides of the fence <laughs> collecting UFO material. Um, so anyway, he became well-respected, uh, not well-known, just well-respected as a person you could share your story with in a discreet, confidential manner and literally get it off your chest because you're sitting on stuff that you don't know what to do with. Just inadvertent observations of like maybe bodies underground or in freezers or crash vehicles or parts or autopsy reports or all sorts of details that these days, today, we don't get any information like that from anywhere. But he collected and he told me in his last interview, which is before he died, that he had well over 600 independent witnesses of about 30 crashes and about 30 bodies that had been retrieved to his best uh, estimation. So that's a lot of people that independently trusted him. Well, over 600 over about, I think it was about 40 years. This raises a lot of questions, and we'll get into it as we progress, but maybe looking at some of the cases that he investigated. Anything sure. related to Roswell? Because he was involved in the UFO field before we heard about Roswell. Did he get any information related to that case or similar cases? Oh, sure. He uh, he got some of the uh, very first information about Roswell, including 
the strange hieroglyphics, Jesse Marcel. I mean, he, he was one of the first ones to get that information, and Stanton Friedman and others pursued it in more depth. But that's in his uh, case files is uh, Jesse Marcel, who had, of course, picked up the debris and made the first reports and stirred up the whole thing to start with. So, yeah, he, he had him uh, way back when, but he doesn't get much credit for that. So, wait, he had spoken to Marcel, and Marcel had come out to him before Marcel had met uh, Stan Friedman? I, I couldn't tell the exact timing, whether it was done simultaneously together or in you know, one right after the other, but it was pretty much, you know, at the same time. Uh, he put out his report in about 1980, and, of course, that's pretty close to the time that Stan started talking about uh, Marcel. You know, eventually got on Unsolved Mysteries in the mid-'80s and stuff like that, but you know, it was pretty close to the same time. So I think when he got it, he told some other people, and then they investigated it further. What was the relationship between Stringfield and um Friedman. Oh, they knew each other. They had talked many times, uh, seen them in the same room together. Um, Len would, would talk very openly with any trusted researcher. Uh, he was very discreet. He didn't have many public appearances or video interviews or TV or any anything, partly because he wasn't seeking attention and also he was afraid that if he did that, that people might be afraid to uh, come forth with their stories. Uh, he was real good about preserving their identity. Even in talking with me, he'd say, well, let's just say they're from the state of Kentucky. <laughs> and don't even know if that was real or not, but he wouldn't even come close to identifying what city, name, anything. He, right to the end, protected all of his informants with great respect and dignity. I mean, it just made him a more honorable man to know that he operated in that fashion and could always be trusted. Okay, well, that also raises the other question. After his death, mm -hmm. did all this information die with him? It didn't die with him. It's under wraps. Several researchers have tried to get hold of it. I understand his wife and family have guarded it very carefully and not just handed it over to just anybody. I'm not sure... Uh, there's a researcher named Bruce Wiedemann in St. Louis who was good friends with Lynn and the family, and he said that there there may be some arrangements um, for that information to be passed on to some particular researchers, but he didn't name who. So they know where it is, and they know that there's more there to be released, but it's kind of uh, sketchy on who's going to end up with it or how it's going to be handled. He had such a close tie to MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, that, uh, in fact, I think he was one of the journal editors at one point, uh, that they have a lot of his, they have all of his reports that he officially made in publications. Um, and I don't know if he possibly was going to pass it on to them, but I don't think it will be just simply lost. Uh, I don't think there's any chance of that. His wife is is in her 90s and still alive and uh, doing okay, according to some people I know. And I I gather she's going to kind of hang on to it and, and, and be careful with it until, until she decides to pass it on to uh, researchers. But she's, she's very careful with it. She, she respects that it's important, and she's not going to just let anybody walk off with it. Well, at the same time, it's been over 15 years since he passed away, so perhaps people 
might be concerned that um, when if she's in her 90s, when she passes away, uh, you know, that could kind of be the end of the trail for this. Well, I don't think so, because there's a son and a daughter, and, and I believe, uh, you know, they've either made arrangements or are making arrangements for the materials to be reviewed or, or written about. Um, I'm just not sure who is involved mm-hmm. at this point. Now, obviously, sure. he had early information about Roswell, but you use yes. the word crashes during the yes. first part of this interview. So I presume then that there are other incidents other than Roswell. Could you maybe mention a few or even one? Oh, sure. Um, there were several reports about a crash near the Mexican border. Actually, I believe in Mexico, and Mexican soldiers had surrounded it, um, Air Force, and uh, I believe from the California Air Force Base at that time, had been sent there. Mexican civilians were told to be quiet. Um, They don't really specify an exact area, but it is definitely over the Mexican border. And they said that there was a dome saucer crashed at an angle into a sand dune. There were films that were shown of this to radar personnel, which is interesting. You might wonder why radar personnel, but at several bases they were shown um, films of this domed silver disc uh, embedded in a desert sand dune. Some parts of the film showed an interior shot of the craft and even a morgue scene with three little humanoid bodies. And this supposedly was around 1952 is the time that this was uh, shown, the film was shown. The crash might have been as early as 1948. So, but anyway, that's just one example. Um, and apparently the, the Mexican soldiers or civilians had surrounded it until the American uh, military got there, and then they took over from there and told everyone else to leave, which isn't surprising. So were there uh, were there multiple sources for this story, or was this a yeah, single source yeah. thing? Yes, like uh, in his reports, I'm looking right now over some of his reports, and there was at least probably one, two, three, four, five, six or seven independent reports about the same exact thing. Some having seen the exact film, some having seen or been part of the operation, um, but all corroborating where, how, how it transpired, uh, what it looked like, you know, just, you know, and everything matches up beautifully and time-wise and detail-wise and location. And they're all independent reports that came in over the years. Uh, so what year did this supposedly happen? Supposedly around 1948, but the film was being shown at bases uh, in 52. So I don't know if it's the same crash or another one, because he's got dates here of 1948, 1950, 51, 52, 53. Well, and so, I mean, this, this begs a question, John. I mean, mm-hmm. so if we've got multiple reports, um, mm-hmm. the multiple reports you would think would all give a clear indication of a year. No? Well, yeah, I mean, it... it it suggests 1948 when the actual event occurred because okay. uh, we've got at least one, two, three, four directly involved. And then, like I said, this film is shown about 52, um, and 
and you got about four or five more reports about this film about that incident being shown almost like a training film hmm. so it's interesting because again since they're all coming in independent how they kind of match up in terms of when it occurred and then also when the film was actually shown at bases so there is a, a interesting correlations there now, this day and age, has anyone example. tried to get information about this case from the Freedom of Information Act? Well, that's, you know, always a good question how much you can get, how much you can try to get, how much there is. Uh, I know that people have tried. Uh, Lynn didn't really go that direction very often. He usually got it from firsthand or secondhand uh, informants. I don't think he ever went through the legal system. So other people I know have tried over the years. Um, but he made a good point when I talked with him. He said that a lot of times that people saw things, but they didn't know, like say they just had a, a need to know in their department. Like maybe they're supposed to just examine the body. Well, they don't know necessarily where the body came from, how long it's been around. Um, where it came from because they're not privy to that information. All they know is that there's a body in front of them. They're supposed to examine it for some particular um, process or reason, and then it goes from there. So everyone had, like, little pieces of the puzzle, and so sometimes it's hard to know which body came from which crash, which vehicle came from which place, which film is of which crash. You know, he just kept getting a collection of, uh, you know, all sorts of reports coming in. And there would always be ones that would corroborate others. Um, one that I found was very interesting occurred in 1978 at Fort Dix. Uh, and this was one that he wrote quite a bit about. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have John Carpenter, and he has a new tribute to Leonard Stringfield DVD that we'll discuss more in a few moments. And we're talking about the life and the work of Leonard Stringfield. So the case at Fort Dix in New Jersey. Now, this is a place I remember because during the days of the Vietnam War, I never was drafted. I escaped it. Don't ask me how. But during those days with Fort Dix, that's where they'd send people to get their basic training. That's what I know about it. So what is this about? What's this case about? It happened on January 18th, 1978, 
And at the time, there were formations of UFOs sighted over uh, the Fort Dix installation. Also, McGuire Air Force Base was right there. And this is in the early morning, probably before dawn. There was a military policeman in his car on a patrol, and he saw one of the UFOs. I mean, there were probably as many as 8 or 12 flying overhead. And one of them swooped down rather low over the road, so he was kind of uh, following it with his car, all of a sudden, a four-foot humanoid jumped out from the side of the road into the road, and he slammed on his brakes. He said it had a large head, long arms, and a slender body, and appeared in front of the car. The MP panicked and fired five shots at the creature, just his reaction. The UFO shot straight up in the air to join the 11 others that were high in the sky, the humanoid ran off into the woods, apparently over a fence, but actually had crawled, had had gone over the fence onto the installation, and was found collapsed near an old airfield runway, and apparently died there. This is uh, at Fort Dix, New Jersey. We're talking about here. Yes. Oh, yes. Boy. The area was roped off. There was a bad stench. A team from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base arrived in a C-141 and put it in a crate, sprayed it, loaded it on a plane. There was no official report made, but they were all threatened with court-martial if they talked to anyone. However, there was an initial form filled out, and Leonard Stringfield, it was leaked to him, and uh, you can see a copy of that in any of his books or his reports. But it's an interesting publication because it shows a typical report form, and it says on it, on on this date, uh, unidentified objects were sighted over the base. MP fired at one unknown being. That's the way they phrased it on the report. And body of same found on runway. It says special, and this is what I find most interesting, special recovery team from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, arrived and took a body of unknown origin. Now, that's pretty interesting. First of all, they have a special recovery team for that. And secondly, because this is after, of course, Roswell, long after, but also the fact that they keep saying it's unknown being or a body of unknown origin. Uh, so you know, that, that sounds well, almost hotter than Roswell in some respects because it's more recent and it sounds more direct. Yeah, and there was one other independent person who came forward that said he had witnessed them, you know, putting the body in a crate and loading it on the truck and, you know, all of that. So so he did have at least two independent reports of that very interesting, plus the document that uh, had come out. And he even had a signature and date, I mean, everything on there. It, it, it's as, as official as can be, and you can tell it was type of the typewriter. And, you know, it didn't look like anything that, that would have been faked. Um, and they had the air base uh, confirming with radar uh, the sightings and, and you know, the radar operators, everybody, you know, confirming, you know, that those objects were in the air. So they had quite a bit going on there. So that was January of 1978. Now, have you tried to follow up on any of these cases that you heard from, from Stringfield, or is the source material basically buried in his records? Uh, buried in his records, you know, and I don't know how many times he actually kept the actual names of the people or they went by code names, he, he told me. Uh, many times it was quite a process to get the information because 
they'd have to go through a, another party and maybe use a fake name. And um, But he knew people were scared. And occasionally after they would go through that, then they would come and meet him directly. But they just had to gain his trust and know that, that they weren't going to get in trouble because they've been sworn to secrecy not to talk. Um, they could be court-martialed, lose their benefits, medical benefits, retirement benefits. And he was told this by numerous uh, military people that they were told not to talk about any of these matters. All right. So, so John, if he's going and reporting this stuff publicly with his name associated with it, um, at that point, did he start getting pressured to not reveal this information? Yeah, he did have some pressure. He was told a few times that he really ought to quit talking and and uh, really, you know, but it was really hard for a, you know, he, he didn't really like go to NBC or CPS or certainly not the Internet. That wasn't hardly even up and going when he died. Well, that didn't uh, exist, essentially. That wasn't there. I mean, he died he in 1994. He died in yeah. So um, he didn't try to make a big splash with stuff. Uh, I can only think of a time or two he actually even spoke in front of groups. Um, I think he spoke in front of, uh, like, airmen and military pilots, one or two UFO conventions, and that's about it. He didn't try to do any public interviews. and So that's why I realized when I had this hour-long video VHS interview with him in 1993, and I came across it recently, and I thought, you know, this is a man that has tons of great information, and nobody even knows who he is these days, and let alone all his great information is just kind of sitting there. Many details that we'd love to have now, and he's already gotten like autopsy details and different things that... All right, autopsy details. Okay. <laughs> I, I just got to stop you there. Where are we talking about autopsy details? This particular instance in New Jersey or others? Other situations. He wouldn't tell me, like, which... I mean, again, the doctor from a, it was from a major hospital on the East Coast, and that's all he, he could say about it. He couldn't identify the doctor in him, but he spent quite a time with the doctor. He went to the doctor's home, had met his family. He had, you know, had a number of visits with the doctor and had gained the doctor's trust. And the doctor had been brought in because uh, he was a very high, highly qualified autopsy specialist. And, and sometimes there were different specialists, like one for like a hematologist or a bone specialist or or skin specialist, you know, there might be different specialists brought in to do their part of the autopsy. And so he had talked to a couple of these specialists and and gotten their reports. And one time the doctor just says, I can't talk to you about it, but you'll get something in the mail soon. And within a couple of days, he got a packet. And it's interesting because it was addressed to him in Cincinnati, but the return address said Cincinnati and the postmark to Cincinnati. And he knew the guy wasn't from Cincinnati. So he says, I don't know how they did that, but they covered his tracks really well. And, uh, or he knew how to cover his tracks really well. But it was a complete listing of the details from the autopsy that he had performed on an alien body. I just want to make a comment about that. Having heard that, John, it doesn't sound like it would be that difficult, really, for someone to send the report to, you know, the, the, the doctor presumably knows what city he's in, 
So to send something to someone so they can send it from the same city is not that much of a stretch in terms of covering tracks. That that's you know, it just needs to be said. It's not that difficult to do with well, the where mail he system. lived where he lived at the time that he talked to Lynn was not where he performed it or where it occurred. Sure, but he could have sent uh, the material to somebody else. That somebody else would forward it directly sure. to Lynn. So well, that's I mean, not that's like a issue. Yeah. And you'll hear Lynn in the interview on the DVD talk about that and how it came about. I mean, he, he goes into all those uh, uh, aspects of, of how difficult it was to get people to trust him and what he had to go through to get mm -hmm. information sometimes. And that's, that in itself is very interesting in the whole interview, just, just the workings behind the scenes of how things were kept secret, how things were slipped to him and, and what he had to go through and any threats or warnings or, you know, right. that, that in itself is, is fascinating just to hear about that from, from his experiences. Before we go into those ramifications, okay, so we have an alien autopsy report here. What yeah. specific things can you tell us about it, about what the doctor found out about this creature? Well, what's really interesting, since I'm in abduction research, I'm hearing details all the time from abductees in terms of what they report. And I'm just fascinated because every single thing that came up in the autopsy matches what I get from abduction reports, and yet there's absolutely no crossover whatsoever. Um, his information was gathered before most abduction reports were ever, ever came out, before intruders, before communion, before uh, just about any publication of, of uh, you know, alien anatomy or bodies that are witness. So I find that just fascinating. Um, starting with the body, it's small, about four feet high, uh, very thin, uh, head is oversized, very large, large what they would call cranium, although I'm not saying that there was a skull, um, but just large-headed, uh, big black eyes. And he made he had several people, and this is interesting again because it was several different sources, told him they had seen the bodies that were dead and the black eyes were still so compelling that every person that saw those eyes just got a chill because they felt like the eyes were still seeing them. Even though they were dead, the eyes were still so chilling and compelling even in death. And he, it's interesting they heard that from about three different independent people. Um, they just felt like the eyes were still watching them. Uh, so anyway, big black eyes, no eyelids, no eyelashes, uh, no hair, hairless body, uh, very thin neck, um, and back to the head, uh, not really a nose, maybe just two little slits for a nostril, maybe a small bump for a nose, if anything, but not really a nose. Uh, no ears, just holes where ears would be. Um, the lips are thin, kind of like a, a coin slot, you know, just this, almost like a straight line. Um, and it doesn't seem to, I guess the mouth could be open, but there really wasn't much in it. Um, it wasn't believed necessarily that food went in the mouth. They weren't sure exactly what it was used for. And let's see, no Description teeth. of the hands, John? Oh, yeah, we're getting there. Okay. Um, the arms are longer than usual, much longer, like down to the knees. 
the hands have uh, four long fingers um, with a little bit of webbing between the fingers. Um, and the fingers are not really a thumb, but just four very long fingers on very long arms. He said that the skeletal structure was more like cartilage than bone, and it was like a loose iguana-like skin stretched over cartilage was the way it was described. No reproductive organs, uh, no belly button, uh, again, no hair, uh, very slender, very skinny bodies. The feet, he said that some feet had like the semblance of kind of uh, like fused together toes and others had some kind of a shoe on or whatever and you really couldn't see the, the toes. But they didn't have like six toes or ten toes or anything like that. It was pretty much um, more like a cartoon character, more like Gumby or something. <laughs> it just didn't really have any uh, clear-cut toes. John, are we yeah. talking about a single autopsy report or multiple autopsy reports? This is a one particular report, although he did have some other reports he said that matched the same details. He didn't go into the details of the others, but he said that any reports he got all said basically the same thing. Um, he did have one autopsy, he said, which was on, and this is very interesting, a tall, blonde alien type, which we often know as Nordic or or more like a Scandinavian with a tall, humanoid, blonde hair, blue eyes, that kind of They did have actually an autopsy on one of those type of beings, which I thought was pretty interesting because this is long before, and about seven feet tall, and this is long before we ever had any alien encounters or, or abduction reports involving uh, tall, blonde-headed beings. So, again, that predates any... Uh, abduction reports, and I don't think many people were reading this stuff, so that's just interesting. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. John Carpenter, UFO abduction researcher, talking about the life and the work of Leonard Stringfield. We've been exploring alien autopsies. Now, I was going to mention before the CSI questions that come about, which is the internal organs 
Now, okay. do the internal organs, heart, lungs, brain, etc., at all resemble humans? Um, he had a little bit of information on that. He said that, uh, first of all, uh, there were no red blood cells, no lymphocytes, no striated muscles. He said they had organs, but they were different than ours. And he really didn't go into, in the interview I had, he didn't really have time to go into particular organs. And I know in some of his uh, reports, he has a few more details. I'm trying to hit the highlights. He did have one other interesting story. He said that, and this really caught me off guard, he said that one of his informants was a scientist who was a friend of a scientist who was a physicist that he knew. <laughs> so, again, a friend of a friend, but all scientists. And he said this was a very reliable man. He was called to a secret location to interrogate a live alien. And I said, a live alien? You mean a captured alien? And he goes, no, one that was there on his own volition. And he says, I have all the information on that, all that he would allow me to have. And again, I said, you mean a captured live alien? He said, no. He said it was there on its own. As far as he knew, it was on its own volition. It was not a captive. And again, he said the most impressionable thing to that person who interviewed the live alien were the eyes. He said they were penetrating, riveting. He felt possessed by them. He said the power of the eyes were unbelievable. And again, this all incredibly matches abduction reports where they always talk about the eyes being the most memorable thing. But here we're talking about a whole different line of research, which is coming up with the same kind of feeling and detail. But that's one thing I would love to get a hold of is, is information on that live interview. A lot of things love. that people are going to ask here, and I guess it has to be asked. Now, I recall knowing Leonard Stringfield not well, but well enough to talk to him on the phone occasionally and exchange correspondence with him. And he seemed like a pretty stand-up guy. But people out there who never heard of Leonard Stringfield, they would say, he made it all up. What do you say about that? <laughs> well, first off, you know Leonard Stringfield, that's the farthest thing from your mind. He's a very respectable, very courteous, polite, dignified man. Uh, he uh, is very intelligent, very careful. You know, you, you could understand once you meet him why people felt like trusting him. He was as he told me, he says, it's just amazing when you collect all this information and you realize that it's real, and yet you live in a world that doesn't believe any of it, you know, and he just kept continuing to be amazed at the, the reports that would come to him and how they would match up and verify various incidents and various other details that he would get from different people. I mean, he even had, like, the president of Mexico saying that he was shown by Eisenhower, you know, uh, a captured craft, you know, in a, in a hangar, you know. You know, that's a pretty strong witness, the president of Mexico, an ex-president of Mexico, uh, Miguel Aleman, I believe is his name. But all that um, is, is in the uh, DVD. What I did with this DVD, just uh, I present the one-hour interview um, complete, and, of course, it switched from VHS over to DVD. So, you know, it's 1993, so it's not like your latest production. It was an impromptu interview. I happened to catch him at a conference and decide, hey, I've got a video camera. He's got some time. 
I'm going to see if he'll do an interview. And since he knew me and trusted me, he, he says, sure, let's do it. And he talked to the camera uh, several times as if he knew, of course, people were going to be listening. And so he'd say, for your listeners out there or for your people who watch this. So he knew full well I was going to share it eventually. So the, the one-hour interview's on there. And then um, I cover about 45 minutes of reviewing about... 40 of his cases and in brief synopsis form illustrated by uh, slides and you know different things some of them actually from his cases some just illustrating uh, what was going on so it runs about an hour 45 by the time you add all that up so in in the DVD I go over all the details of the autopsy I go over uh, what the president of Mexico had said and what different you know reports he had so some of his best cases, I go with the details in just brief form, but uh, you know, so the listener can understand, you know, all the kinds of cases he got. And just listening to those 45 cases, you can just hear how the details match up and how amazing, you know, it it adds up. One of the things, of course, also comes to mind here is maybe Leonard Stringfield is a straight-up guy. He honestly reports what was given him, but. Is it possible there was some disinformation from the government amongst all that data? There's always a possibility of that, um, and he knew that, and he did get some reports, which he would he would uh, find out later. Uh, like he had a great South African case talking about shooting down UFOs and recovering bodies and all sorts of fascinating details that anybody would just you know drool over. And then he found out from some other informants that that was fake, it was phony, he was being fed a line. So actually there were informants that would squeal on other uh, maybe disinformation uh, people. So it was real interesting. So immediately then he would check out as much as he could to verify different reports and try to get a second or third person uh, verifying different things if he could. And so he was really careful, and he could have been sloppy and just presented everything and said, well, here it all is, you know, but he was he was always debunking even his own reports if he later on found out something. Quick question, John. Uh, the the ex-Mexican president, would that be Miguel Aleman Valdez? Uh, well, the name I, in his report was Miguel Aleman. So all right, I don't so know. I just want to verify that, yeah, Miguel yeah. Aleman. All right, just curious. Uh, Thanks. And I can I can tell you real quick, just uh, uh, his report, which came in nineteen uh, late nineteen fifty two. Actually, he revealed it in nineteen seventy, but it was about an incident in ni late nineteen fifty two. He had a, a gathering that President Eisenhower uh, visited an Air Force base in the southwest of the U.S. and had seen. The president of Mexico had seen a retrieve saucer and alien bodies. This visit by the Mexican president to Edwards Air Force Base was confirmed by several other sources. It is believed that Eisenhower made the decision to keep secrecy rigidly enforced. So that were that, those were some of the notes uh, Lynn had on that particular case. And there's there's more details, but you know he's going to again tell us only what he thinks that we need to know. Now, the book that Leonard Stringfield wrote that we most heard about is Inside Saucer Post 3.0 Blue. 
Huh? Now, where did the title 3.0 Blue come in? Sure. Um, that was his, let me double check here, that was his uh, code for when he was with the Ground Corps, the Ground Observer Corps. Now, he also had a newsletter, by the way, called Civilian Research Interplanetary Flying Objects, a newsletter that came out regularly yes. during his lifetime, yes. and I remember getting copies of that, so I'm quite familiar with that publication. I don't have them anymore, unfortunately. It would have been nice. Too bad. That'd be fun. Oh, yeah. That would yeah. have been great, yeah. I also wrote a book called uh, UFO Siege, and it has subtitle, too. But uh, anyway... Um, Here's what the Air Force told him, and this is right out of his uh, interview on my DVD. He says, "We, the Air Force told him, we want you to screen and report, get rid of the junk, but anything that you can explain away, um, and in your opinion, if whatever is in the sky seems to be unidentified, then call us and we'll give you, here's the code number, Foxtrot Kilo 3-0 Blue. This will work through the Cincinnati Bell telephone system. We will pay all phone bills. There will be somebody on duty. It could be a sergeant, a first lieutenant, it could be a major. But we would like for you, if you will cooperate with us, to inform us of what you're getting of your live reports, real-time reports. So that was a quote right out of his interview. Uh, so that, that was his uh, code number. So when he called in, they would know that it was him and... Uh, and that he would get clearance um, to get through to the right people. So he was officially reporting cases to the government. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Now, how long did it he went, do this before he retired or whatever? Well, uh, well, he did that for about three years, and then he was replaced because they had uh, sophisticated, uh, uh, let's see, what was it? This is in the days, of course, Project Blue Book, right? Right, right. Okay. Um, he carried on in that capacity for about three years, and then they developed a system in space that would pick up anything coming or going in any direction over the United States. Uh, once they got that in place, they didn't need this ground observer core anymore. So he basically got uh, ousted by technology. <laughs> but he did that for about three years, and it was back in the early 50s, Oust, I believe. Ousted by technology. We're, we're real familiar with that. So what did he do in civilian life? What was his day job? He was a PR guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, he uh, wrote articles. I think he was with a newspaper at one point. Um, he was a writer. Well, actually, it turns out that he was the um, director of public relations and marketing services for Dubois Chemicals, a division of... I don't know how to pronounce this, uh, Chemed, Chemed Corporation, Cincinnati. So apparently he uh, worked as a PR guy for a big chemical company for like, I think it yeah. was for like 30 some odd years for quite a while. Yeah. Yes, right. that, that's what I remember too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and he was, he was always known as a person that had respect, dignity, um, his it, wife it might was have a been fine woman. It might have been curious to, to speak to that company to find out what they thought about this side of him. Because you would think that if there had been pressure, and, and I wanted to, to touch back upon that, John. You said that when I asked you if he had been pressured to be be quiet, and you said he had, um, you didn't indicate who had put pressure on him. And I'm, I'm also just wondering if um, if there was any indication that 
this uh, Dubois Chemical Company in the, I guess it was like 30 years he was with them, if they put any pressure on him. You know, as someone who is a PR guy, mm-hmm. it sounds like, um, you know, it, it would be to their benefit to not have him involved with this topic. Mm-hmm. Well, he uh, did not bring up his research, from what I know, very often with his job. Or I mean, he, he kept his quiet like a hobby on the side, and he he pretty much kept kept it very secret. Um, the only time any information came out is when he would write a, a confidential private status report, as he would call them, summarizing uh, different cases and, again, maintaining uh, anonymity for names, states, locations. Right, but uh, the report was, had his name on it, right? Sure. But it wouldn't come out publicly. It wasn't like uh, published in the newspaper or press or anything like that. It would go to like uh, research, uh, like MUFON, research organization. It wouldn't go publicly anywhere. And this was a day when you didn't have the paparazzi following people around with any degree of notoriety. So that would be also an issue there. I've hardly ever seen a UFO person with paparazzi around. <laughs> they, they apparently don't have that status yet. <laughs> Hopefully it'll stay that way. Yeah. <laughs> Before we split for the one-hour break on our show, can you tell listeners how to get a copy of this DVD? Uh, actually, I'm the only person with it, so uh, you can get it directly from me, and I can give you both an address or an email. You don't have a website for this? Nope, not yet. Okay, we'll take the snail mail method, okay? Let's go for the snail mail. You're kind of like Jim Mosley here. You know, Jim Mosley doesn't have a computer even, so he takes everything by snail mail. So those of us who are interested in getting a copy of this DVD, where do they send the request, and you can explain how much it costs? Well, I'll be glad to give an email for those who are up with that, uh, and then we can give an address, too. Um, The email is carpenter26. Five five at aol dot com, and that's a quick way to get information. The to order it directly, you would order or send your check or money order, and it actually comes to a total of eighteen dollars, fifteen for the DVD, and three dollars for shipping. And you would send that directly to uh, post off my name, John Carpenter. Post Office Box 14517, Springfield, Missouri, 65814. Why to repeat that address again? Because people are now scurrying for their pens and paper because they don't do that normally (laughs) anymore. That's okay. Uh, Again, to John Carpenter, Post Office Box 14517. Springfield, Missouri, 5814. Now, the name of this DVD is a tribute to Leonard Springfield, or what? I named it The Man the Military Trusted with Secret UFO Stories. Okay, The Man the Military Entrusted with Secret UFO Stories, and certainly a lot of them will be getting into more of those stories, and also about the methods he had to use to protect the identity, the security of the people who came to him to report all this stuff. We have John Carpenter, a UFO abductions researcher, and maybe if we have a couple of minutes, we can talk about that. And we're focusing, though, on the life 
and the incredible work of Leonard Stringfield. We'll be back on the other side of the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the PowerCast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. To automatically assume that everything is the work of an extraterrestrial intelligence, I think, would be a mistake. To automatically assume that things that you can't understand are supernatural occurrences, I think that's a mistake. I think that because physics as a science is so imperfect that we may discover eventually that some of the more baffling things that we experience as phenomenon will later be described in very precise terms using tools which we don't have now which would but which will be developed later to give more rational explanations for stuff that is too scary welcome back to the paracast with gene steinberg and david Vietti. we have ufo abduction researcher john carpenter we're focusing on the life and the amazing work of the late leonard stringfield but before we go on john you're a UFO abductions researcher. How did you get involved in that? <laughs> Good question. Probably, I'd have to say I always had an interest in the subject uh, ever since third grade, just reading stuff that people were treating as like newspaper reports, and I thought that was fascinating. And then I got into psychology and got trained in hypnosis, and about that time, Bud Hopkins came out with his book and Whitley Strieber, and I'd been kind of following reports. I mean, I can remember when Travis Walton actually happened and the Hills case actually happened with Betty and Barney Hill. I mean, I lived through those times when those events had just occurred. And so when Bud Hopkins came out with his book, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm in the field of psychiatry, and I have been trained in clinical hypnosis, and I have an interest in the subject. I could possibly help out. Nah, <laughs> I waited another year, and then I wrote a letter to Bud Hopkins and to Mufon, and and uh, within a day, <laughs> Mufon signed me up, and Bud Hopkins, within about a month, well, actually, he called within a couple of days and referred me a case uh, right away. It was within several hours of where I live, and so this was in 1989. And, um, oh, I'd say within five years I had 90 different cases, and in another four or five years I had another 50 or so cases. And any one of those can be extremely fascinating and full of details. So I had my hands full. I, I pretty much got swamped very quickly, but that, that shows you what can happen if you volunteer to do something in your free time. <laughs> so, so, John, uh, based on the cases that, that you looked into, just a curious question here. There are certain aspects of what Bud feels are credible abduction cases that are um, often present in the descriptions that he right. gets from people under hypnosis. Um, 
in in the research that you've done, have you found your results to mirror what he and Dave Jacobs seem to be running into? Are there any things that are that are markedly different than their research that you're coming up with? Hardly any differences. And what people don't realize is when Bud and David and John Mack and I would get together and compare notes at a conference or a meeting or a special research, you know, deal. We would get together in a little room and say, okay, did anyone get this? And then we'd all go, yeah. <laughs> and then once, and then John Mack would say, well, did anyone get this? And it would be a little tiny details like are there suction cups on the end of the fingertips, you know, or, you know, just little tiny details that aren't published, haven't been published. We might have written symbols that were seen inside the craft that we wouldn't publish or talk about. And Bud would encourage that if we gotten certain items like that to hold on to it, to, to try to keep some things uh, out of the public eye so that we could perhaps verify cases by those tiniest of details. And sure enough, it was true. Uh, there were things that I came up with and I thought, oh, nobody's gotten this, and then I'd go and they all had had that come up. What was even more impressive was when I went to Australia for a conference and Many of the people down there hadn't even gotten any of our books up here yet or haven't even heard of our books up here that, that we had. And yet they were talking about tall blondes and reptilians and praying menaces and little gray beans and, and all the intricate details that we had just talked about at a research meeting in private. And I thought, there's no way these people down in Australia could possibly have known all that kind of detail unless they went through it. So, you know, things like well, but that now, well, now, John, wait a minute. What what year are you talking about? Um, this was back, Australia. Australia was in 96. Well, surely by then, not to be the devil's advocate or anything, but if you're going down in 96 and you're hearing these kinds of things, the books and the materials had been public at that point for many years. So, I mean, yes. do you think it's that unusual that that stuff would have gotten down there? Not not to question the veracity of any of this, but it seems to me like by 96, a lot of the published materials about these accounts certainly had gotten down there. I mean, I, I, there's, there's no question about well, that. Well, so, the only two books I'm aware of that, that were even mentioned were Communion and Intruders. But when I asked particular people about them, Mm-hmm. They hadn't they hadn't seen them. They hadn't read them. And you have to remember that these witnesses aren't UFO enthusiasts. These witnesses are like school teachers, police officers. One I worked with down there was a social worker, a therapist. And when I asked her about the books, she goes, "No, I don't look for books like that. I've never even gone in a store and tried to find anything like that." She goes, "I, I wasn't even sure what was going on with me." And the conference that I was at was the first very first Australian UFO conference, period. <laughs> so uh, it's not like they could have gone places and heard people talk or, or or even made the connection that it was even necessarily a UFO experience. I mean, sometimes these experiences happen and they don't know how to explain it or what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though the books may be out and even though they might have been available and might have, they could have searched them out, they didn't know to search them out or they didn't look for them or they didn't, they didn't recognize authors' names or anything in particular. That's one thing I thought was pretty interesting, um, that they just really 
didn't seek those things out and didn't look for them. And sure, I guess they you could always say they could have, but my experience was they hadn't and, and they didn't know about them. And even if they had, you wouldn't find in intruders um, any talk of reptilian or crane mantis or tall blonde beans. You know, none of those books went into those creatures or details of those or behaviors of those or any of that stuff. So. Even if they had read everything they could find, they still wouldn't have had the material that they were talking about. So it was pretty interesting, indeed. I think we should possibly even consider doing an episode focusing just on your abduction research because of you're also the chief abduction researcher for MUFON, right? Well, I, I was the uh, director of their research for about 10 years, and uh, I ended up with so much material, I had to take kind of time off to go through it. I mean, I kept collecting and collecting and collecting, and you want to take time to go through it and study it and look at it, and I was kept so busy with my regular job and then this in my free time, I didn't even have time to, to look through it. So I, I've begun going back through it, looking for patterns, details, um, parallels, and it's amazing because there's more there than I even thought was there. Um, it's it's just fascinating. So I'm starting to write some of that up and uh, compile it, and it'll take a while, but I'm working on it. John, just out of curiosity, if we may ask, what is your, your normal day job? Uh, I'm a psychiatric therapist. I work with couples, families, individuals, children, teenagers, all kinds of psychological problems, behavioral disorders, you name it. Um, and I consult with a doctor and a nurse uh, with medicines and treatment and uh, do psychiatric assessments and that kind of thing. So that was one reason when I got into this they were really excited because if they're going to say these people are crazy, I'd be the first one to say yes or no because, well, <laughs> that's my field. And I have to say I've never found a psychiatric illness that would explain any of these reports. The interesting thing is what I did find is that almost most people that came to me were, of course, bothered. Ones that weren't bothered wouldn't be coming to me because they didn't need counseling or didn't want any particular help. But for people who were bothered, they were experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, which ironically translates into a normal human being experiencing extraordinary circumstances leading to, well, the kind of behavior Vietnam veterans and anyone who's been through trauma would present. Nightmares, flashbacks, jittery, hypervigilant, watchful, anxious. Um, and, well, the interesting thing was these people were having these symptoms, but they didn't have any obvious event, you know, until they uncovered the missing time or what happened to them with uh, an encounter with a UFO. So now, here they were having these symptoms. Were you at all able to coordinate any of the things that you've done there with the work of Leonard Stringfield and the things that he did? Oh, my gosh. The, um, in fact, he actually sat in on one of my hypnosis sessions because I had a government worker. And this was a real interesting session because she had seen stuff, but she was sworn not to tell. And so... Dr. Bruce Maccabee and Lynn Stringfield sat in on my hypnosis session to see what she might come up with using hypnosis. And the interesting thing was as she started to talk under hypnosis, her hand flew up to her mouth and covered her mouth so she couldn't be understood. I mean, she was 
so programmed not to talk that even under hypnosis, she blocked her own speech. And I've never, ever seen that before or since. And, of course, they were all disappointed they couldn't get more out of her. But, hey, she was programmed by something stronger than, than my skills to not speak. So uh, she she could not come up with anything. But it's interesting because she was very upset and very emotional. She obviously saw in her mind and knew in her mind what she was remembering, but she just couldn't tell us, wasn't allowed to tell us. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to John Carpenter, a UFO abductions researcher, and he has prepared a tribute to Leonard Stringfield, which includes an interview with Mr. Stringfield and his own reviews of the various research. We'll tell you later on the show again how to get a copy, how to order it by snail mail. The old-fashioned way still works and still exists. Now, in the case of Leonard Stringfield, did he ever offer to bring to you some of the people he dealt with maybe to examine them? No, he didn't. I suppose if we lived a little closer, he might have. People were wary enough just talking to him, telling him details. Most of them would probably be very reluctant to undergo hypnosis because most people fear that they have a loss of control and they're going to say more than they should or, or reveal more than they're supposed to, and then they feel like they have a loss of control. Now, the, the irony is they don't have a loss of control. They just fear that they're going to. But he never did that. I, like I said, the one case where we were all in St. Louis at the same time and we had a potential witness, then immediately he grabbed me and said, let's try this. But since he was in Cincinnati and I'm in Springfield, Missouri, we're, we're pretty far apart. But we rendezvoused in St. Louis and also in Indianapolis, uh, oh, three or four different times and spent hours together. He was actually my roommate <laughs> for two St. Louis conferences, and that gave me the wonderful opportunity to spend hours late at night and during the day talking with him. And he was pretty eager to, you know, talk with someone that he knew was a professional and, and, uh, would treat the information seriously. All right, looking at more of the things that Leonard Stringfield did now, you mentioned in part one of the show that he engaged in 
an elaborate scheme or methods to ensure that secrecy was met in dealing with his various information sources. So maybe can you tell us a few things about that, some maybe anecdotes or things that kind of express an idea of how he did these things? Well, they actually kind of laid out the structure to him more than he set it up. Uh, they would tell him how it was going to work. They would tell him that so-and-so, that there'd be a person contacting him and and that he was to meet somewhere at a, at a certain location and that person would... Uh, uh, not reveal name or any identifying data, but would just simply talk and would not allow questions. I mean, so he was often told how it was going to be. Sometimes the person would just hear him at a lecture and talk to him after the lecture and when everybody had left and would then tell him stuff. Other times he would actually go to their homes and spend days or hours talking with them and get lots of information and as he said he would often do that to make sure they were going to tell the same story twice to make sure they weren't going to start embellishing or adding more details just because he was spending more time with them so he often did that for consistency but he said often there would be a second person involved that uh, would pass on the information or or hand him materials but he, the original primary witness often didn't want direct contact and most of it was that they were afraid that they were being watched, they were afraid they were being followed, they were afraid the military would find out that they were revealing information, and they were just too frightened to do to uh, say much. So, But in the DVD, what I was going to say earlier was that in the DVD, you really get a sense of his integrity. Just as you hear him talk and lay out the history and and describe his whole process from where he began and I mean he, he literally starts with his beginnings in it and takes you all the way through. So you just get this sense of what a distinguished and trustworthy person he is by the time you listen to him talk. And that's one thing I was really pleased that the interview captured was you can just get a sense of his character and his trustworthiness. Now, how did these people seek out Leonard Stringfield? We understand when he was with the government, but after he returns to civilian life, how did they find out about him? Is it one person telling another person, hey, this is the guy you report this case to? Yes, that would often be the case. Or uh, he'd give a lecture to airmen. He often did that to, like, pilots or airmen or military groups. He would just kind of give a little lecture and tell about some of his experiences. And almost always there'd be somebody in the audience, like he might talk about a particular crash in, let's say, Mexico. And after the meeting, a young man would come up and say, I need to talk to you because I was there. And then Lynn would question him to make sure the guy, you know, was legitimate. And he would have certain identifying information or know certain people. And uh, and then Lynn would, would get his story. Uh, or they would say, well, it's not really me, but I'm aware of the person who was there, and I'll put you in touch with him. So different things like that would happen. And... Again, he told me he had about 650 witnesses over 40 years, so you can kind of figure out 
And he said even up till his last year, he was still getting new witnesses and new information coming in, even even now. Now, the one thing that occurs to me, he's doing this for 40 years. Did he have an end game, some ultimate goal to take all this and say, okay, here's the evidence, it's E.T., it's whatever. It sounds to me like he collected everything, but except for the books he wrote, that was it. Yeah, I wish he would have written more. He had plans to write more. I mean, because he told me that many of the things that he felt needed to be heard were going to be out in his next writing. Well, he didn't have a next writing. And, of course, that really made a lot of us wonder what would he have told us? What did he have that he felt was important that we needed to know? John, what did he die of? He had Parkinson's really bad, and I'm not sure what complications he might have had with it. One reason he didn't do public interviews is because he had a, a, a twitch or a, a kind of a jerk of facial muscles, neck, and so while he's talking, he might have a, a rather distracting Parkinson's-type symptom. And he was embarrassed by that. He, he, he didn't really want to talk in front of people very often. He did, but he didn't seek it. He he was, and so when I put this DVD together, I actually went through and tried to edit out every possible uh, facial grimace or jerk that he had, and uh, it doesn't really affect the DVD any because they're just split second. They're just you know split second things. But I had the editing uh, equipment where I could take out split second facial grimaces or jerks, anything that could be distracting. And so that's one reason I, I think he didn't give a lot of public interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did talk to airmen, and he did talk to certain groups that were ex-military or, or people interested in the subject. He'd do little local lectures and stuff. And it's amazing how many times that would pull up somebody uh, that knew something. Perhaps they knew he was going to speak, and they told so-and-so who told so-and-so who made sure to go and hear it. You never know how that works, but... I almost always have somebody after one of my lectures come up and tell me something as well. And it could be from any part of the research, from crash retrieval on. Somebody will come up and tell me something. And you can tell by the look on their face they're real uneasy, tenuous. They don't really want to say a whole lot, but they just mm-hmm. can't sit on it. They just are dying to talk, but, but they're afraid at the same time. You know, when you say that, it leads me to think, you know, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg here, that when people like you, Leonard Stringfield, Bud Hopkins, any of these people, they go up before the public, and invariably there's somebody there who knows somebody or was personally involved in some kind of case. And you wonder how widespread this is, how widespread UFO abductions are, how widespread sightings are amongst the population because of this. Extremely widespread. I lived in Springfield, Missouri for, oh, a number of years before I got involved in this subject. And I never heard of any UFO sightings or reports or anything in this area. I assumed nothing was going on in this area. Well, (laughs) once I got into the field, I soon learned the history. There were some very historical things that happened not too far from me. And once people knew that I was there to talk to, I heard reports from anywhere from... uh, A month ago to 40 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and they had sat on it all that time because they didn't know who to talk to. And so once they knew I was here to talk to, I started getting reports from all over the area from people who just had 
didn't know who to talk to, and now they did. So it made it look suddenly like Springfield had all this stuff going on, and actually I said it's a reporting phenomenon. You know, if people know who to talk to, there'll be a lot to say. But if there's no one around to collect it or to trust, they'll sit on it. They'll basically John, sit on it. A, a quick question about your, your therapy work with people who uh, say they've been abducted. Sure. Um, have you found that once they speak with you um, and you're putting them under some form of regression hypnosis, um, does this assist them with dealing with the problem or does it exacerbate fear, well, you frustration? Might think, you might think it would make things worse, but actually, as one psychologist put it, it's like pulling the thorn out of a, a wound. It hurts. It's not pleasant. But boy, once you get it out, you feel a lot better. One woman said, it's like I've recovered missing pages from the book of my life. And I always loved that because I thought, boy, if that doesn't sum up, she didn't know where these times went, where these hours went, where these experiences came from. But now that she's able to piece it together with um, my helping her remember or helping her process it or talk about it, because a lot of people remember stuff consciously as well. And so by the time they talk about it, process it, and can feel okay about having had such an experience, they feel great relief. I even had a group at one point where different people could meet and talk to each other, and it was just amazing how great they felt talking to each other. And you should you should have sat in on some of those groups. They'd start talking about things they'd saw on board the craft that they never told me about, and they'd start comparing notes with each other, and yet, they had different years, different experiences, different times, and yet they would say, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that too. And, and I'm like, like, wait a minute, you guys didn't tell me about that. All right, so so now that you bring that up, sure. forces the question, can you give us one example of something that would fit into that category? Okay. Um, for example, they might talk about a certain, um, like, uh, might be like a control panel. And they would say that there were like geometric colored lights, but they would wave a hand over the lights and then something would happen. They wouldn't push them like buttons. They would just wave a hand over it and then something would happen. Uh, just a detail like that. Um, Proximity or, controls. Sure. And many thought that the, the crafts operated by thought control that they thought the crafts to fly. And that's why uh, when they did the crash retrieval work, that they, <laughs> they could never find an engine or any kind of mechanical parts, moving parts or anything that would resemble an engine, and they could never understand it. Well, if it was thought control, sure, that would explain a lot. Well, the thought control would be like a push button, though, wouldn't it? It wouldn't mean that it wasn't powered by some kind of engine. It just may be that we don't understand. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain 
domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Namecheap, where we host many great contests, or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash Namecheap. See you online. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. What we do understand is we have John Carpenter, UFO abduction researcher, who's worked with MUFON, and he's prepared a DVD, a tribute to the work of Leonard Stringfield, and we're covering both areas, his abduction research and what Leonard Stringfield has done during his lifetime, and I guess coalescing the details, but that's something you didn't mention before, maybe we should bring that up. Okay, so they did retrieve craft according yes. to the evidence that Leonard Stringfield had assembled. Okay, can you tell us more about what they retrieved and what they found out about it? Probably not what they found out about it, but uh, I know Leonard Stringfield shared some very interesting details. Uh, one which I'd heard both, again, from abductees as well as from crash retrieval research is that you might have a disc like in a hangar that might be about, let's say, 30 feet in diameter and maybe only 8 feet tall, you know, not very big. And yet when you would walk inside of it or, or crawl inside of it, it was as big as a basketball gymnasium. And it would just flip out anyone investigating because they they would, like, be really disoriented for a minute, like, wait a minute, we crawled inside this little object, and now it's as big as a gymnasium inside. So there was some kind of time-space mystery there, (laughs) hard to explain, but yet that came up not only in his research a couple of times from reports, but also in abduction research as well person wondered, well, how can I fit inside that little thing? And then they'd be inside, and they said, well, it was really huge on the inside. It sounds like, so, of course, Doctor Who and the TARDIS. I'm sorry? <laughs> All right. There's a TV show, a British TV show called Doctor Who, and it goes back uh-huh. to the 60s, late 50s and 60s, and he goes and travels around space and time in a device that looks like an old British telephone booth, but when you go inside, it's huge. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, now, now uh, there's an important thing about that I'd like to ask you about, John, because we've heard that a number of times, and I've always wondered, the teams that are looking into this, okay, they, let's say they have a craft, like the exact scenario you just described, okay? Uh-huh. It looks like it has one set of dimensions from the outside. They go inside, and it appears to have much more, much greater volume of space. Now, Very practical. <laughs> right, but but now here's the magic question, and I'm wondering if there was anything in Stringfield's research that would uh, would help illuminate this a little bit. But it's one thing to perceive a greater amount of space inside of a craft with one's senses. It's another thing to do an actual volumetric measurement to right. be able to discern that indeed there is physically more space. I mean, there are a number of ways to determine a volumetric quantity. Does anything in in Stringfield's research indicate that uh, people were not just relying on their visual perception, but were actually using quantitative analysis to determine that, in fact, there was a greater amount of, let's say, internal surface volume that you would expect to find in something of that size? 
Well, that's a very good question, and I'm sure that they probably did that, but he didn't report any specific numbers. He would say things rather like, well, when you go inside, there's other vehicles parked inside, and you could walk around all over the place. And, you know, so it certainly suggested that there was a, a real physical difference and not maybe just a perception. I'm sure that whoever was investigating found that intriguing and probably did measurements, but he didn't have any numbers to report. See, at that point, I'd also wonder if they were actually inside the craft or somewhere else. And I think that's something that uh, sort of underscores the strangeness, what's often referred to as the high strangeness aspect of these things, where it seems like there's a good possibility that appearances, in, in this particular field, appearances can be very, very deceiving. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And when you get so, into abduction research, you run into so much more of that because the hypnotic quality of the eyes uh, often presents screen memories, what we call, where the person's made to think they're looking at like a white owl with black eyes or I don't know how many four-foot chipmunks and four-foot bald squirrels and four-foot, you know, leprechauns and four-foot parrots and you know, so many different types of things that have big black eyes that weren't ever those creatures. And when I would do hypnosis, I would say, well, if it like if they think it's a four-foot parrot standing in the middle of the road stopping their car, then I'd say, well, if it has feathers, what color are the feathers? Well, they, they seem to be gray. And I said, well, tell me about the beak. Well, it doesn't have a beak. It doesn't really have much of a nose at all. I said, well, tell me about the tail. Well, it doesn't have a tail. It seems like, oh, my God, it's not a bird at all. <laughs> and, and then they will tell me what they're actually seeing. But they break through that screen memory. And uh, David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins often talked about, as well, emotional experiments that the creatures would often present whole scenarios where you think you're in your boss's office and they give you a gun and tell you to shoot him and, and see what you do about it. And it's all holographic. It's all illusion. Uh, and the minute that you give an answer, then all of a sudden it disappears and you see little grays standing around and you don't see any office or boss or anything. So, Quick quick question for you, because you have this, yeah. um, you have this technical background in uh, psychology and psychological therapy. Sure. The issue of screen memory is a recurring one when uh, you research this topic. What else, what other types of psychological events create what we would consider screen memories because clearly uh, when for example people have childhood trauma right serious sure. trauma right there is this uh, this recurring theme of uh, mm -hmm. regardless of the sourcing of the trauma their memories get rearranged memories get distorted memories sure. get essentially fabricated so if we know that there are certain types of non-paranormal incidents that create what we might call screen memories, what are the um, psychological elements that you would then transpose onto or find in common with uh, what you would consider compelling abduction cases? Well, I think it shows that the mind uh, can be suggested. And I think, seriously, I think the aliens do that to make it easier for us. I mean, we'd much rather think that we're looking at an owl or a squirrel than an alien. So... I actually think they do that on purpose so that we aren't so freaked out. 
uh, and are more cooperative and maybe go along, especially if you're talking about children who want to play with the cute squirrel, you know, they're more likely to do that than they are if they see an alien. And it's also true that we can see something so terrifying that our minds just bring up something safer to remember it as. And we wondered for a while if it was just our minds doing that to protect us from such terrifying images or if they were doing it deliberately. Well, we had a number of cases where the creatures said, you will remember this as, or you will always think of this as, uh, or in one case, several people were given the same image, and that's very unlikely if the individual mind is just trying to cope. You wouldn't have three people come up with the same exact thing. So we had enough clues that they were actually inducing that, and especially if they're staring into your eyes every time that you then get an image. That's rather suggestive that they're putting some kind of hypnotic image into your mind. It's, so, it's interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, again, just because uh, we're not familiar with the psychological techniques that you would bring to this table, can you, for in layman's terms, can you give us something of an idea of how you essentially approach this issue sure, of sure, trying sure, to sure. differentiate between, for example, what you would call a screen memory uh-huh. and an actual memory? Because I think that people that hear this start to think about the following scenario. So, John, given your, your technical background in in this psychological therapy that you that you do and the number of, of cases you've looked into, imagine you've, you've hypnotized a pretty decent number of people here. When we talk about this issue of screen memories, you know, our, our audience is fairly intelligent. And something that it, very likely they're thinking right now, not that I'm psychic or anything, but I guess there is this question of once you have a situation where you have potentially some sort of a being that can create a fairly significant distortion of the perception that someone is having at any given moment, so that they're seeing screen memories, so that they're going along with these uh, very perturbing situations, what any rational, objective person would say is definitely fairly a, a jolting, traumatic stuff. How do you delineate between what appears to be a, a, a forced or manufactured screen memory and then the memory of seeing the creature after the screen memory gets stripped away. What are the, the psychological mechanisms, I guess in layman's terms, if you, if you will, what are the, the, the mechanisms that you use to strip away what is potentially uh, not a real memory from ob- objective memory? Well, basically, a person's mind is told that they're seeing a particular image, and so then their mind comes up with that image and holds on to it. What I do is I try to get them to go into great detail about that image, and what they're doing is actually looking back at the source. As they look back at the source, they begin to realize detail by detail it's not what their mind was telling them it was. And I never lead them in any direction. In fact, I often try to lead them the wrong direction or or a very rational, logical direction to see if they're suggestible. And they stick to their guns in terms of what they believe they're seeing. For example, if they say that they see a four-foot bald squirrel standing in the middle of the road, 
Well, you and I know there aren't many four-foot bald squirrels that will stand in the middle of the road and stop your car. So I'm suspicious to, to start with, but they'll swear by, oh, no, it's a squirrel. It's a strange one, but it's definitely a squirrel. So then I will ask them, well, tell me about the bushy tail. That's a logical uh, assumption that a squirrel's probably got a bushy tail. And then they'll say, well, as I look, I, I really don't see a tail. Hmm. Okay, well, tell me about their claws. Well, I don't see claws. I just see four long fingers, and they look more human. Well, okay, tell me about their uh, bald head. Well, it's a really big head, and, and they don't have whiskers or anything. And, in fact, they just got these big black eyes, and, and never once do they stop and say, oh, it's an alien. You know, they don't do that. They go, well, this isn't a squirrel. This looks like something really different. And, and then sometimes they break through, and they realize, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. That is not a squirrel. And then they start freaking out. The very thing that the image was supposed to protect them from, now they often hit the emotion, the panic, the, the fear. And I'll use things to slow it down, to calm them, to divert their attention temporarily so they can regroup, uh, feel safe. I always reassure them that we're just looking at it. We're not really there now and maybe back them off a little bit so that they aren't overwhelmed too much. Because uh, sometimes they'll jolt right out of trance, and if they're too uh, shocked or amazed. And then I will say, well, how do you think the squirrel got there? And then almost always they say, they told me it was a squirrel. They told me it was a squirrel. You know, something like that will come out. Or they'll say, well, I don't know. I just know that they were staring into my eyes right before I saw that, you know. And you almost always hear the same kind of process. You know, that they're staring into your eyes or they're right there. Anyway, I remember a case of Bud Hopkins where he had two ladies who thought, sure, that they saw this car pile up in the middle of an intersection, except that the thing that was peculiar to them was there was no police, no crowd standing around, no blood, no broken glass. So how could there just be cars piled up in an intersection and flashing lights? Well, it turned out that it was a screen memory they were both given for a UFO that had landed on the road. But it was a mm. poorly constructed screen image because they knew, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not what a car wreck would look like. <laughs> so it wasn't constructed good enough to fool them. But the, the interesting thing was they both given the same image, uh, which definitely suggests that there was a strong, uh, like, hypnotic suggestion to see it that way. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We are having John Carpenter, 
And we're talking about his UFO abduction research, and we'll talk later before he leaves. We'll tell you again how to get a copy of that DVD where he interviews the late Leonard Stringfield. John, getting back to Stringfield for a moment, you'd mentioned that his original interest in all of this goes back to a UFO encounter he had early on while in the military. Could you elaborate upon that a little, please? Sure. And on the DVD, he really goes into some interesting detail on this. He was en route uh, to Okinawa, where he was stationed, and he said the plane he was on was a C-46. He said as he was approaching the famous Isle of Iwo Jima, three objects came out of a cloud bank, came toward the aircraft, made a sudden jolting turn, and followed the aircraft. He said it all happened in a few seconds, but the plane reacted rather violently, and they dropped at least 2,500 feet. Then the three objects suddenly disappeared into a cloud bank, and the plane immediately got back onto its uh, course and and leveled off, landed safely at Iwo Jima. Um, and he said that was the beginning of his UFO career when, when he had that encounter, and it certainly piqued his interest, to say the least. That there was what did the objects look like? There. John, what did the objects look like exactly? He, he just described them as three glowing objects that came out of a cloud bank. At the time, they called them Foo Fighters in World War II. You know, uh, they had a lot of sightings of these glowing objects, um, discs, different shaped objects that would come out of the clouds and, and often be right next to the planes. You know, it was, it was pretty, uh, he said at the time, pretty nerve-wracking. You know, it's, you don't expect that to happen. You don't know what it was and don't know whether it's uh, some kind of enemy device or, or what. But What exactly happened to the plane? Well, the plane, he said, lost, uh, dropped a distance of about 2,500 feet. And then when the objects disappeared, it, it got back, leveled off and got back at its uh, uh, supposed flight pattern. They lose engine propulsion? I mean, was this magnetic in nature? Do we have any details about that? He didn't really say, but if he were here, I'm sure he would He would answer that. Uh, he didn't really tell me in, in greater detail. He said, though, at the time, he, he, he was awestruck, but he didn't think of it necessarily as an alien craft. He, he just didn't know what it was, and he was very interested. Of course, that led to many questions, and then he found out that these objects have been sighted by other people, and they're trying to find out, is it German, is it Japanese, what is it? And then he began to realize it wasn't any of theirs. So that's it, what really got his curiosity going. And I'd have to say from knowing Lynn, he had a great curiosity, he had a great passion for the unknown, for trying to figure out, you know, things like that. So I could see how he'd just be fascinated by that incident and, and be forever intrigued from there on. I guess the military knew that and then put him in charge of collecting reports and while he was in the service and then afterwards, uh, you know, while civilian, still working in conjunction with the military to uh, uh, kind of be their ground observers who call in reports. And uh, he said one time that he was told there will be jet fighters coming over your house probably in about five minutes. And sure enough, five minutes later, he heard the roar of jets way up high. and. He was told later they were uh, headed over Kentucky chasing objects that had been, that he had actually reported to them on radar uh, and had been verified by radar, I'm sorry, but it, that he'd received reports of, they verified with radar and sent up interceptors to track. And 
that was the instant that he said, now that was pretty major. He says, what if I just go to the newspaper and want to talk to him about it? And they said, go right ahead. So he did, and when they tried to verify it with the military base, they said, we've never heard of Leonard Stringfield. <laughs> so he said later, I see what you mean. You aren't going to admit that I exist. And they said, we told you, go ahead and try it. So it, it was just a good example of proof that they cover up, just absolute direct proof that they cover up the kind of investigation that they do and their awareness of UFOs. Now, actually, anybody listening to the show, I would strongly recommend they go check out the Wikipedia page on Leonard Stringfield mm -hmm. because there, there, there actually are some, some other details about some of this stuff. I just want to quickly read something. Uh, there is a, a paragraph, just a brief paragraph, on his sighting, and it reads as follows. I'll just uh, just read it right now. Quote, I was shocked to see three teardrop-shaped objects from my starboard side window. They were brilliantly white, like burning magnesium, and closing in on a parallel course to our C-46. Suddenly, our left engine feathered, and I was later to learn that the magnetic navigation instrument needles went wild. Um, as the C-46 lost altitude with oil spurting from the troubled engine... The pilot sounded an alert. Crew and passengers were told to prepare for a ditch. I do not recall my thoughts or actions during the next horrifying moments, but my last glimpse of the three bogeys placed them about 20 degrees above the level of our transport. Flying in the same tight formation, they faded into a cloud bank. Instantly, our craft's engine revved up, and we picked up altitude and flew a steady course to land safely at Iwo, Iwo Jima. So I think well, that's, that's a, certainly, you know, yeah. yeah, much better detail and. You know, uh, I, you know, he knew he had already recorded that, so in telling me about it, he was just kind of mm -hmm. hitting the highlights. But that that certainly is a great detail, and that's typical of Len. And, you know, if he could put the detail in, he definitely would. Well, it's kind so, of interesting because uh, when you when you read in this on this page later on, there's this uh, fascinating thing, and I'm wondering if he if he had spoken with you about this. It says, despite the official public denial of his work for the ADC, Stringfield wrote he received a letter in 1956 thanking him for his assistance from no less than Major General John A. Samford, Director of Air Force Intelligence. It says here he also received a letter in 1955 from Captain Edward J. Ruppelt who had been director mm -hmm. of the Air Force's public UFO investigation project Blue Book from 51 to 53. Uh, Ruppelt yep. was requesting information on CRIFO, C-R-I-F-O, for the book he was writing at the time, the report on unidentified flying objects, and praised the report collecting net Stringfield had established. So I just think it's relevant. Did, did he mention to you that he had received this, uh, this uh, correspondence? Yeah, he, he mentioned it in passing. There are a lot of things he got involved in. Uh, like, he was involved in, in setting up the, one of the first meetings at the United Nations with UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim, uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, Jacques Vallée, uh, astronaut Gordon Cooper, uh, and others to talk about studying UFOs. And that was in 19... 77. He even wrote the speech for the Prime Minister of Grenada, who was making the proposal to the United Nations. So, uh, Len has a way of getting in on a, a number of things kind of from the background, and uh, 
He he was uh, good friends with some of those people that you mentioned. You know, when I hear him talk, I just think, wow, he's just talking with such historical figures. It's just amazing who he's known. And he was very high up. Uh, he was actually an early warning coordinator for the Colorado Project, headed by Dr. Edward Condon in 1967 to 69. That was a government-sponsored scientific group headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. He screened and reported UFO activity, again, in the tri-state area that he lived in for that project. So there's just all sorts of things he was a part of, but again, he's one of those kind of quiet, in the background, brilliant uh, researchers. Now, Dr. Condon, this, of course, raises the point of the mm-hmm. Condon Report, the infamous Condon Report. You know where I was going, Gene. Sure. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so did... Leonard Stringfield feel maybe double-crossed by Dr. Condon in the way he handled that report? Well, I know he wasn't thrilled with how that came out, that's for sure. He didn't use the word double-crossed, but I know he wasn't thrilled about how it came out. He was a data collector, and he gave it to them, and then what they did with it, he wasn't always thrilled. But uh, he said, well, you know, what can you do? You know, he has his job to do, he does it, and from there, he says there's never any control over the information once you've passed it on, what they do with it, whether you ever hear it again, whether you ever see it again, whether it's ever reported accurately, you don't know. But all he could do is his part, which is, I think, why he then tried to take more control over just collecting reports himself and not passing it on except to researchers or serious people studying the phenomenon, but not certainly to government people any longer or to any black holes where it would disappear forever. I know I talked with, actually got to talk to astronaut Gordon Cooper, and he'd had a a fascinating sighting in the desert, some outing he was on, and he saw a silver disk. This is Cooper. Okay, so this is one report, John, that we've spent some time on on this show. And uh, this is a really interesting one because from from what we've gathered, and maybe you have some deeper insight into this. I'm, I'm really glad you brought this up. From what we've gathered, Cooper didn't actually see the craft outland. I mean, he, he says he handled the film. He right. says he looked at the developed film, but... There seems to be some question about whether or not he was actually on the tarmac when this thing landed. What do you know about that? That may be something different. I know what you're referring to now. He talked about, like, out in the desert and seeing a small disc with three legs coming out like a tripod. Right. This was the thing that they filmed. Uh, We're talking about the same thing. We're talking about the same thing. Now, I, I know for a fact, having talked with them and... His signed statement, which which I had, uh-huh. uh, I actually framed it because I thought this is pretty amazing. He signed oh, yeah. it, and I, I had it. And he he always said he filmed it. He was there. He turned the film over, like he said, like a good soldier to the people that he thought should have it. And he kicked himself because he never kept a copy of the film that he had shot because it disappeared into a black hole. It was never seen or heard from again, and he couldn't track it down. And he said he always kicked himself that he didn't hang on to a copy for himself because he saw the object and he filmed it himself um, landing. And he also had had an encounter in a fighter plane as well, or a trainer plane, uh, right. much like much like Lynn had had. So Lynn decided he wasn't going to pass it on to the government anymore. <laughs> he 
he'd rather keep these reports private and and let the people who are reporting know that he was not passing it on to any higher authority or going to get them in trouble with it. So, John, uh, I've got to ask you now, uh, because we've taken a little bit of heat about this, this Gordon Cooper thing. You're saying you have a signed document from him stating that he witnessed this thing on the ground? He sure. filmed it? Sure. And yes, and he spoke at a conference, which it wasn't very often that, that you get him to a right. conference. But I was at the conference. I heard him speak on it. I, I got a copy of his statement and his autograph about it. Talked with him over dinner. Now, I don't know what other people are saying, but right. I well, ever well, here's the thing. There. If you have that, I'm going to make a request on the air here. Take a digital photograph, slap it on a flatbed scanner. I would really like to see that document. I think a lot of our listeners would really like to see that document. Because as I, as I said, there has been some question about whether or not Cooper actually witnessed this thing himself. If you're saying you have a signed document from him attesting to this, I think this would be a very valuable piece of information to get out there and 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 again if you have this i'm gonna i'm gonna plead with you to take a digital photograph we'd love to put this up on our forums well no this is a this is a huge thing because um i'll dig, I'll dig it up i have a pretty good right. idea where it is i'll I'll, right. I'll try to dig it up for you please we would really appreciate that i know our, our audience would deeply appreciate it this has well, been an ongoing discussion it. anything we can do to kind of clear things up yeah we sure. really appreciate it this would be just tremendous in fact what do they say back in brooklyn a mitzvah uh yeah i think that's that's technically a mitzvah a good deed and yes yeah. oh yeah it's almost like paying well, it forward i'd be glad to uh i i don't have any doubt having talked with him having heard him speak having picked up you know a copy of this that, that he autographed and at the time, I thought, well, that's pretty important, so I, I kind of framed yeah. it and, and made sure I kept track of that. Uh, so I thought, well, it doesn't get much better than that. It would go a long way towards clearing up this issue because um, we uh, we had a, a quote-unquote skeptic come on this show to talk about this, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, he basically ended up de deconstructing the show after it aired. And one of the things that he claimed was that there was no proof that Cooper had ever seen this thing, that he tried to say that Cooper basically handled the film and passed it on. He filmed it. Well, then we we would really love to see that document. That would uh, again, it would really kind of because personally, Make your day. <laughs> uh, well, absolutely, and I think that it would just clear up any issues around. There have been people, and I, I think this is heinous personally. People have come out and said, well, Cooper was making this up. And having seen the interview footage with him on James Fox's Out of the Blue documentary, sure. uh, I would bet my life that Cooper was being absolutely straight about this. I, I, oh, he, he wasn't straight. kind of person yeah. to tell exactly. stories, that's for sure. Exactly. He was, so, he was as solid of an American hero and, and distinguished uh, astronaut as they get. I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, so, you know, yeah, that, right. th that document would, uh, would be a great one. Uh, I'll look for it. Okay. Yep. I, I know I've got it because I actually saw it probably in the last month when I was digging through stuff, so I know it. It still exists in my stuff, so Excellent. I will dig it up. We'll Jeez. post it in our forums. We'll post it on the site. We only have a couple of minutes left, John. Can you tell our listeners once again where they can get a copy of your interview with the late Leonard Stringfield? Uh, the only place to get it is through me um, because I've 
put all this together myself and, and put it out myself. Uh, they can get it, they can inquire about it to my email, which is carpenter2655 at aol.com. Also, you can write or send your check or money order for a total of $18. That's with shipping and handling, $18 to John Carpenter, Post Office Box 14517, Springfield, Missouri, 65814. Let's have that address one more time. That's as they say in the commercials, you know. Sure. John Carpenter, Post Office Box 14517. One seven Springfield, Missouri. It's M O six five eight one four. And I should add that I'm throwing in a sixteen page typed transcript. Because being an old interview, some of the audio sometimes some people might have a little trouble and so I throw in a free transcript so they have no question about what exactly he said. So I just throw that in just as a bonus. John Carpenter, you've brought a wealth of fascinating information to us and I'm certainly glad to remember Leonard Stringfield all over again. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Powercast. Thank you. Thanks, John. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.